The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Looking at what God has to say to us from the rest of the chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. I'm going to read it for us. We're going to pray and ask for God's help. And then we're going to start looking at this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, so I'm sorry, if you don't know your Bible very well, um, or you're new to the Bible, that's not a dig, uh, it's in the back, a few, maybe about 50 pages in from the back cover. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 6, or chapter, chapter 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do not impart wisdom, although it is, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. For these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word, um, many things that could distract us this morning, and so I pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit, as we've just talked about in this passage. We would be ruled by him as a community. They would understand the things of the Spirit. And they would share those things with people who would come to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this phrase, but I hear it a lot with, as, as I talk to my friends in the city. I'm not spiritual. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, right? I'm, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not a religious person. Um, I, when I hear this, this means a lot of things to different people. People kind of hear that or mean that differently. When I hear that, here's what I hear my friends saying. Uh, I believe there's something more than all that we can see or experience, and I'm all about that. But I'm not about all the corruption and perversion of organized religion. That's kind of what I hear when somebody says, hey, I'm spiritual but not religious. Because when they look at the church, they see a whole bunch of messed up people with a bunch of hypocritical dynamics going on in their church. And they're like, look, I know God's real, and I know there's something about God that I want to be about, but I don't like the way his people work. <laughs> that's, that's just generally what people mean when they mean I'm spiritual but not religious. Now, if you take that dynamic and then you put that in a church context, <laughs> that's going to be crazy, right? That's going to be set things up a little bit nuts, where you have somebody who's like, I don't like organized religion. I'm all about spiritual stuff, but I'm, all a, part, I'm, but I'm a part of an organized religion, <laughs> right? That kind of messes, it kind of like... It like takes a stick and like shoves it right into the front tire of the bike, right? That's what Paul is talking about here in this church, right? This church has had a whole bunch of spiritual people 
who are all about their own versions of what they think God's doing, but they are not much a fan of God's people, and they don't really intend to serve God's people. Right? That's what's going on in this passage. And the whole the Corinthian church, right, the, the church in Corinth, they're all, they had a whole bunch of people who were spiritual but not religious, and in their, their sense, there was a spiritual arrogance about them that caused chaos within the church, right? They actually become religious with spiritual language, and they were not spiritual in any sense of the word. And when Paul comes to this passage, and this passage, and he starts addressing those people, he starts kind of poking them in the eye a little bit, right? He starts saying, yeah, if you're going to be spiritual, we have to ask the question, whose spirit are you with? Right? What's the spirit that you're spiritual, the, the spirit word in there? Who is that? Who is that spirit of what it means to be spiritual? Right? What does that mean? Right? It's, um, it's kind of like what country are you with? Are you patriotic? What, what, if you're patriotic, if you're patriotic for your, in the United States or you're patriotic for the United Kingdom, right? Whatever it is. What, what country do you belong to? What, when, he, when he starts talking about the word spirit, he starts asking, what spirit are you with? Who's the spirit that you represent? Because ultimately what happens if, you, if, um, if somebody's spiritual but not religious, what can happen is that it's my version of what I want, my, my experience of what, what it means to be spiritual without any reference or any care for what that means to know the Holy Spirit or know who God is or to care about the other people that know the Spirit, right? There's a, it's totally individual. It's my experience and it's not committed to other people. When Paul addresses these people, one of the first things that jumps out of this passage, there's no use of the word I, me, or you. It's all we. It's all us. It's all ours. So when Paul thinks about what does it mean to be spiritual, how to be a spiritual person, his first thought is to say the Holy Spirit makes a spiritual community that's committed to the Holy Spirit. Right? If, it, if, it, if you're going to be spiritual, the Holy Spirit makes people who are spiritual in community together. Right? It's not an individual experience. It's a community experience. It's something that we all engage in together. It's something that we're all a part of together so that the whole question of religion is kind of like kicked out the door because the Holy Spirit is the one that sits in the, sits in the room he says, I'm going to draw all these people to me because I'm making a community that's committed to who? Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing in this passage here. As we look through this passage, right, there's actually nine terms, that he's, nine times that he says, you, me, our. This is us, our community. It's not just your individual experience. Your individual experience is important. But when, when the Holy Spirit wants to make you a spiritual person, he makes you into a spiritual community with other people. Right, that's the nature of, of what God is. He is a spirit, and he draws us into a spiritual community with himself. So if we're just going to say, what's the main point of this passage? A spiritual community is ruled by the spirit of God. That's the main point. Main point of this passage, we're going to break this down and kind of, how do we be spiritual? How do we be, how do we be spiritual? What does it mean to be spiritual? Well, to be spiritual means that you're in a community ruled by the spirit. Spiritual community is ruled by the spirit of God. So how does a community become ruled by the Spirit of God. So we're going to kind of we're going to cut this passage up into three parts. And we're going to look at the first part here, picking up in verse 6. A spiritual community loves upside-down glory. Maybe these are not going to be things that necessarily make sense at first. But we're going to kind of press into them to say, okay, if the Holy Spirit is doing something different, 
than what we expect. The first thing that is going to, the Holy Spirit does in making us spiritual people is he makes us a spiritual community who loves upside-down glory. Verse 6 to the first half of verse 10. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decrees before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what, the, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. See, the first thing he says here, right, that it, what's been going on in this passage up to this point is that Paul has been kind of going, um, you know, basically MMA on their whole understanding of what it means to be uh, wise and impressive and spiritual, right? He's just been given it blow after blow. And at the same time, he's not saying, like, wisdom's all bad. But he's saying, we, we, we're all about a certain type of wisdom. We're going to have wisdom that's from God and is not based in kind of all your, like, fancy shenanigans of how you impress people with your words and style and all that stuff, right? He is saying, but we do care about wisdom. Wisdom is important. It's a part of who God is. But, verse 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. So if you, if you just kind of read this verse, this whole passage, by the way, at face value, can kind of feel like Paul says one thing, and it feels like he says a contradictory thing. So, Paul, you're saying, we give wisdom, but it's a secret wisdom. It's like, bro, like, how can I be held accountable for not knowing, like, the secret wisdom if it's a secret, right? If somebody, you know, like, you imagine, like, when you're in fifth grade and somebody's got a secret, like, and you don't know it, but they're all about, like, I've got a secret, but you don't know it. Like, that sort of thing. Like, is that what Paul's doing here? What Paul's doing here is actually, when he says, I, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, he's making a reference to basically the whole first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. Because he, he is referring to this dynamic that God has been doing something all through the, the history of the Old Testament that nobody understood until this point, until you get Jesus, and then the whole Old Testament makes sense. Right? We, if you have this, we... He, can we throw these next few verses here just to kind of help us kind of see this a little bit? When Paul says, I have the secret hidden wisdom, next slide. What's this mystery of the secret? First Corinthians, so just a couple chapters later. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, right? Are these like secret things that you kind of like hand out when somebody gives you enough money? No, that's not what he's talking about. Romans 16, 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. You see, it was all here all along. The point is that when people read the Old Testament, they thought, we've got to do all these religious things to be spiritual people, to prove to God that we're a part of his people. We, we've got to prove it. We've got to do all these things. And then once we get on God's good side and we scratch his back, then God will give us all the good things that we want in life. But all along, God was telling a story of a weak Savior who would come and die for weak people who couldn't break the power of sin and death over them. 
and die on a weak cross and be raised from the grave three days later to break the power of Satan, sin, and death over our lives. That's the undercurrent of the whole Old Testament. It's like, it's like furniture in a dark room, right? When you walk into like a living room that you've never been in before, you're like, you're stumbling over all the furniture. But then you turn on the light and suddenly you see it. Like, oh, right, here's the couch. I don't want to run into that. Or there's the toys on the floor or the Legos. You know, you want to avoid the Legos. <laughs> That's like Jesus in the Old Testament. It's all there. It was all a part of what God was saying and doing and revealing. And yet the darkness wasn't God. It was our own hearts because we wanted God on our own terms. But the spirit comes and then turns on the light of the Old Testament. And then suddenly we see Jesus right there, smack dab in the center of the whole thing. That's how God shows us who he is and the secret wisdom. So it's this wisdom of God to do this story, to tell the story of how he's saving people in his own way for his own glory. And the problem was that we couldn't quite see it. But as you guys, as we're reading through this, I think this, this story that God was telling will become even more ridiculous. We kind of drop in here at the end of verse 7. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Does that phrase kind of weird you out? You're like, wait, I thought this was all about God's glory. I thought this whole story was about how God was great. And yet here's Paul saying, God did all of this stuff. All of these things happened in the Old Testament. All these things happened in Jesus for our glory. That is not, that's not where I was expecting that, that sentence to end. Right. What is Paul saying when he says, for our glory? Well, let's go back to the story that he's been telling us about Jesus, who, who Jesus is and what the gospel is. Because the gospel is a story of, a, of Jesus Christ who comes to save us from our sins and then give us everything that belongs to him. To give us everything that's true about him. That everything that's true about him now becomes true about us. This is, um, in theological categories, this is called the, the doctrine of federal headship, the teaching of federal headship. And I know this, like, we always talk about federal headship. Like, don't you talk about federal headship on CNN? Like, isn't that on Fox News or whatever? Like, we always talk about federal headship. Here's what federal headship means. Uh, you think about the word federal, right? Go to our state representatives. They represent us, right? That's all in the news these days, right? They don't do a good job of representing us. And then whatever's, whatever's you know, people impugn them with um, becomes somehow impugned to the people who follow them, right? Like, um, well, so-and-so said this, and he's a real jerk. And so now all the people who support him are real jerks too, right? Federal, they represent us, right? That federal part of it, they, they represent a people. So when we say federal headship, we're talking about somebody who represents a people and what's true about him becomes true about his people. That, that's the whole point of that, that, that category. So then when Paul says, God's done all of this for our glory, the crazy thing is about the gospel is that what's true about Jesus now becomes true about us. Not because we've deserved it or earned it or we've found, uh, we paid God off enough, but it's because what is true about him is the nature of the gospel to save us from what's true about us so that then we become people in Jesus that God looks at and says, pure, lovely, holy, right, good. Not because it's true about us, but it's because it's true about him. And that becomes who we are. That's how God looks at us. We get to enjoy the benefits of what God's done in Jesus. Right? That's, it's, um, 
I know we're all kind of still in the glow, afterglow, uh, the Super Bowl, right? Uh, some of you are not Super Bowl fans, or you're uh, pagans and you don't love Patriots. So <laughs> that's what's wrong with you. But um, think about this. Everybody who celebrates their team winning, whether it's the Patriots or whoever, right? They celebrate, our team won. You know, Tom Brady got it. He, he won the game. Yeah, but did you, have you ever picked up a football in your life? <laughs> Do you know how to play football? No. You, you don't know how to play football because you, you couldn't even get close to being in the same league as Tom Brady and doing all amazing things that he does. And yet, when he wins, all the people who are fans, we get to enjoy the benefits, the joy, the celebration of what he's accomplished, right? Nobody was there to help him like, hey, Tom, let me help you with this. Okay, let me just, you need to throw the ball in this way because he's going to catch up here and they're going to come this, you know? Nobody helps, right? I mean, not any in this room, unless you've got some secret side job that I don't know about. But yeah, we still benefit from the, what he's accomplished and we celebrate and enjoy it. That's, what's, that's, that's the part of what Paul's getting at when he says, we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed for the ages for our glory. Right? The gospel is aimed at our hearts celebrating something we could have never have accomplished on our own. Right? The gospel aims at saying, he has accomplished everything, and I get the joy. Right? I get the benefits of all that Jesus has accomplished. Right? That's, and that movement of heart that says, all about Jesus, not about me, that's the Holy Spirit's work in us as a community. Because it's not, even the church here that we enjoy, none of this is because, oh, look how smart Jacob is. Or look how great the plan was. Or look how slick our processes were. It's all about the Holy Spirit has drawn us together to point to Jesus and say, He's our joy. Not not even us. And yet, we get to enjoy it. And that's the point of what He's doing. Right? Now maybe maybe what we, when we kind of work through that and we say, you know what? I don't know if I, if I deal with a lot of spiritual arrogance, like I'm better than other people, but I bet you there's a few of us in the room that feel from time to time that we are not worthy to be able to enjoy worshiping God. Do you feel the struggle that you're not worthy to be able to enjoy worshiping God for who he is? Something's happened this week, something that's unresolved from your background, something that you said to your spouse on the way here, or maybe your kids, or something you thought about the driver in front of you, and you're kind of like, well, somebody who has those opinions about people who drive poorly surely can't be somebody that worships God in freedom and truth. Right? The purpose of this passage is for Paul to say, you know what? The purpose of the gospel is to take your eyes off of yourself and to enjoy what God is doing for us in Jesus because of who he is and not what we're doing. Right, false spirituality says, I, once I prove my glory, once I prove who I am, then I'll worship God. Gospel spirituality says, because he's proved his glory, we can worship him. We worship an upside down glory. We don't, we don't worship because of how great we are. We don't enjoy God because of how much we've proved ourselves worthy to be able to worship him. Jesus has proved how good God is and how merciful he is to people like us. And we worship because of what he's accomplished for us. We don't prove anything to be able to enjoy God. We don't prove anything to be able to enjoy him as a community and worship him. So even as we're going to finish up singing at the end of the worship service, 
don't pay attention to the lies and all the unresolved sins in your life. Direct your eyes to Jesus. Say, because of who he is, I'm going to worship in freedom and truth. And he's going to shape me from the inside out. So a gospel community is ruled by the Spirit of God. And the first thing that's true is that a gospel community loves an upside-down glory. The second thing, we're going to pick up here the second half of verse 10. A gospel community loves the free spirit. For the Spirit of God searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received the Spirit, not now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of Him, the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. See, there's that free word, freely given us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So. What's going on in this passage, this passage is all about who the Holy Spirit is. Sometimes we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're kind of like, oh, he's like this, like, basically souped up Star Wars force, right? Like, he's just like this force, like, everybody kind of feels and is around everything. And Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit, he's a person. He's a third person in the Trinity. If you wrap your head around God being three persons and one God, then you're smarter than every person in human history. And yet that's who God tells us that he is. And he tells us that this third, third person in the Trinity is verse 11 for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which that person which is from him which is in him so also no one comprehends the thoughts of god except the spirit of god what he's going after is that um the spirit knows all of god's thoughts because the spirit is god is is the third person in the trinity and he's using this metaphor to say like just like you can't understand all my thoughts because you're not me and I can't understand all your thoughts because I'm not you. The Holy Spirit understands all the thoughts of God because he is God. Um, it's kind of like uh, whenever like, my wife or maybe your spouse asks, hey, what are you thinking? And what's the answer? Nothing. <laughs> I can't really ever communicate all my thoughts to my wife about everything that I'm thinking because, well, frankly, I, I don't think a lot. Um, <laughs> but also, it's just hard to, to communicate everything that's inside you. But God, the Spirit, knows everything in the mind of God and everything about what God thinks about you and everything about what God thinks about us and what everything that God knows is true about Jesus. And he looks at us and then he freely gives us the Spirit so that we can begin to look at our Bibles and understand that. Right? The Spirit is given to us so that we understand what God's thinking about Jesus so that we know what God thinks about us. That, that's, that's the point, right? God wants us to know what he thinks about us. Right? And that's why with verse 12, we have received not the spirit of this world. The spirit of this world often has a paycheck involved. It often has a tit for tat. You give me what I want, I give you what, I, what you want. But God looks at us and says, I want you to know who I am. But the spirit is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. God gives the spirit freely because God wants us to understand and enjoy who he is in Jesus. Right? And he does it, verse 13. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Right? He does it through words. 
he uses our words, right? To go back to what we were saying in previous sections of 1 Corinthians, right? The Corinthian church was all consumed with the sophists, and the sophists were people who were basically uh, talking heads of the day, right? They would even have schools where they would teach you, okay, when you make this point, raise your hands at this direction, at this way, in this dramatic moment, to make the point, because then people will get it, right? It was very orchestrated speech, and it was very kind of manipulative to try to get you to understand who God is and what he's doing, or their message, or whatever it was. But Paul just says, look, we're just going to talk about Jesus, and we're going to talk about the Bible, and we're going to do it in plain words that require the power of the Spirit to make sense. Right? It's not going to depend on the personality of the person involved. It's going to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit for those words to reveal who God is. But he uses words. Right, if you follow the logic of this passage, the Spirit comprehends the thoughts of God and is freely given to us so that we might understand, deeply understand, at a deep place in our hearts, deeply understand the mind of God revealed in the cross of Christ so that, verse 13, we might speak words to point to Jesus. That's the Spirit that's freely given to us. And the spiritual community loves the Holy Spirit to be among us to do that. So that we begin to speak words, use, use our words and actions to reveal who God is. Imagine, imagine with me what this would look like. What do these words sound like? Words that invite people to the world-shaping redemption of God, to the renewal of all things in Jesus. Words that communicate the compassion and heart of God for sinners. Words that stop us in our track and make us reckon with reality. Words that lift drooping heads, wipe away tears, and strengthen knees. I want to I invite us to be a community along this passage that's committed to words shaped by the Holy Spirit to reveal who Jesus is. I want us to commit to be a, a community that uses our words to show how good Jesus is, to have words shaped by the Spirit, to have art shaped by, a, imagine putting on a redemption, a redemptive, a redemptive, um, what's the phrase I read here? A redemptive imagination hat. Put on a, a hat, and, so to speak, shaped by the redemption of Jesus, of Jesus making all things broken and weak and sinful and redeeming them and making them new in himself. And what does that do to how we speak and make art and engage in our community? How does that give us a power to be able to talk about who Jesus is that doesn't depend on the manipulation of the world or the politics or the whatever the sort of nasty stuff that goes on in the world around us? Or in our own hearts, frankly. What does it look like to have words as a community that are shaped by the Spirit? Right, words that speak care and compassion of people around us who have tried us to, for the last time. Words that help our brothers and sisters reckon with the reality that they do not get to define the world in their own terms. Words that encourage the women around us to find their identity in Jesus. Words that care for children and not... Um, not to put them down because they're small. Words that point to Jesus as our true older brother. 
that all people can be a part of his family. If you are committed to the arts, or you write songs, or you do poetry, or you write books, or you use your words to create a world that reveals who Jesus is, can you share that with our community? Can we write songs together? Can we write songs that reveal who Jesus is, that are driven by this power of the Holy Spirit to show who he is in this church? Not because it's on a record label someplace else. Because the Spirit wants to do something unique in 03103 zip code here in Manchester, New Hampshire. The last thing we want to say about a spiritual community, a spiritual community is ruled by the Spirit of God because a spiritual community loves the mind of Christ. We're going to end here, verses 14 to 16. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit. They are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. A spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. See, all through this passage, unfortunately through Christian history, the very thing that this passage is intended to do has been manipulated to accomplish the opposite thing. Right? This passage has frankly been used to manipulate it to be like, there's first-class Christians and then there's second-class Christians. And if you read this passage, you can kind of get that, right? You're like, all right, well, there's the first-class Christians who sit in the front of the plane, and then there's the cabin peons who sit in the back of the plane, right, without any leg room and no seating space and all that, right? But that's not what Paul's trying to accomplish here. He's, he's making a division between those who know Jesus and know the world that Jesus is redeeming and those who reject it, right? He is making a... a, a a statement about the natural person, which is somebody without the, the spirit, um, for they are followed to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned versus a spiritual person. Uh, somebody, the, one of the main things in the New Testament, just is kind of like a, hey, here's a, a category to realize. The, the New Testament, one of the main things it says is you're a spirit-filled person, right? That's what it means to be a Christian, to be a spirit-filled person versus being somebody without the spirit. Somebody without the spirit cannot understand the things of the Spirit, which is a weird phrase. I want to, I want to kind of pick up on that phrase at verse 14. For they are followed him, for he is not able to understand that. Um, right, for, sorry, right before that. They're not able to accept the things of the Spirit of God. What are the things of the Spirit? What, what is that? But the things, it's like a general term. It's kind of like the Walmart of the Spirit. What are the, what are the things of the Spirit? What are the things that belong to the Spirit? Well, it's actually a phrase that Paul uses over in Romans 8. We can throw that up. Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on, here's that phrase, the things of the Spirit. For the mind of the flesh is death. For the, for, for, to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life. For the mind of the Son of the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. So you see what he's, he's saying? The, 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 the distinction is God's law, the Bible. Right? The mind that is set on the flesh, the natural person, rejects the Bible. It will not set its mind on the Bible. It will not cling to the Bible. It will not say the Bible reveals who God is and shows me who God is and tells me all of what's true about Jesus. The Bible is nothing for me. But the things of the Spirit then must be what? The Bible. All that God has shown us. This is what Paul's been talking about. Paul's, in the first two chapters here, Paul has quoted the Old Testament like five or six times. 
He is constantly pointing back to the Bible itself to say, this is where God reveals who he is. And these are the things of the spirit that show us all that's true about us in Jesus now. Right. That's the purpose of the phrase. The phrase is to say all the things that belong to the spirit, which is this whole book that tells us about who Jesus is. Right. Those are the things of the spirit that we set our mind on, that we we that we get in Jesus because Jesus turns the light on. And now we want them to be in our hearts and in our lives and shaping who we are. Right. Is this is this kind of making sense that this, the things of the Spirit are all that God has re- spoken by the Spirit in the Old Testament, frankly, the New Testament as well? It is looking at the Word of God and in God's mercy, that same Spirit that gave us the Bible now turns the lights on in our minds so that we see what God is revealing about Himself in Jesus. And the frustrating thing for us is that only the Spirit can do this. How many times have I explain Jesus to my friends and their takeaway is that's good for religious people. And just like, man, you've missed it. I remember giving, um, I don't know if you guys ever read the book Prodigal God by Tim Keller. Uh, it's, it's all about this, the story of the prodigal son, right? A guy who disses on his dad, uh, spits in his dad's face, takes half of his dad's money, goes off and squanders it in Las Vegas, comes back and says, God, I'll just rather be your, your slave um, because I can't, I can't make it anymore. And the older brother gets all kind of bent out of shape. And the story is all about the father in the middle whose heart is open for all people, broken, sinful, weak, and self-righteous to come and find their healing and hope in Jesus. That's the point of the story. So I gave that book to a friend of mine, my last job that I worked at. He gave it back to me and said, man, I wish that was true. Man, you can't. You can't force people to embrace Jesus. You can't manipulate people into embracing Jesus. And that is what is so, it's, I, I feel it deeply, it's frustrating. Because it depends then not on my skill, not on my eloquence, not on our ability to get people to pay attention, but on Jesus himself to turn the lights on. Trying to have mercy on somebody to see that it's true. And Paul pokes us here to say, don't get arrogant. Verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. At face value, we read that and we're like, well, that's a great ticket to ride. Nobody can say, you know, you get pulled over for uh, running the red light or for speeding. Sorry, officer. Uh, you, I am to be judged by no one, including the state of New Hampshire. So please go away. <laughs> No, the point of this passage is to say a spiritual person discern, um, judges all things, which does not mean that all of us all of a sudden are uh, experts in astrophysics, right? I'm, I'm reading a book, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? That doesn't mean that somehow because I'm a Christian and frankly, I'm a paid Christian to be a pastor of all things, right? It doesn't mean that I am somehow smarter than this guy and understand the intricacies of the universe better than him. What it does mean is that if Neil deGrasse Tyson and I were to stand in the same room, I would say, Neil, God knows how broken you are and how you've sinned against him. And he knows me. And he knows how broken I am and how sinful I am and how deeply in need of Jesus I am. And the only difference between us is that I can discern that you don't know Jesus because you don't confess him and that I've been judged by Jesus and that he embraces me for who I am and himself. 
That's the difference, right? That's what he's saying. It's not, uh, now Christians understand all things and we're better than everybody else. It's that at a moral and spiritual level, the realities of our hearts have been exposed and in Jesus they've been judged. And somebody who doesn't know Jesus has not seen their sin judged on the cross of Christ. Right? Remember what we talked about last week? The cross must always be at the center point of how we think about things, how we think about our lives, how we think about what it means to be somebody alive in Jesus, because the cross must stand at the center point of how we understand. I was absolutely loving my sin. I was loving everything that rejected God and that God broke in without asking my permission to save me from my sin by taking the punishment for my sin so that I can enjoy the goodness and flourishing of all of who Jesus is. I did not deserve that. You do not deserve that. And yet, the Spirit turns the lights on. And how does he end this passage? But we have the mind of Christ. To have the mind of Christ is to have the gospel to serve how we think about who we are. And it's not just a me experience. Did you see that? What's the pronoun there? But we had the mind of Christ, a community that is an organism that, you know, flows and sways together as we get to understand who Jesus is, as we work together in our life together, as we do missional communities together, and we offend and bump up against each other, each other and rub against each other and say, man, you really, you know, bummed me out with that, or you really did this that offended me, or, hey, I'm seeing this happening in your life, and I'm seeing God's grace in your life. In midst a sway and swoop of all the Christian life is the mind of Christ that says, We've received more than we could have ever asked for and been given more than we could have dreamed. And it's not because of anything we've ever done or earned. It's because of Jesus. And the way we do that is because the Spirit rules us as a community. The Spirit is the one that always takes our minds and hearts and says, Jesus and Him alone. And if that's what we do as a church, it's because we are a spiritual community ruled by the Spirit of God. It's not, it's not just how to be spiritual on our own terms and what makes us happy and fills us up, but it's actually to be a part of a community, to be a part of this church or another church, right? We're not the only ones who do this. To be a part of a church that says Jesus and Him alone. He alone will be my hope and source in life. That's what it means to be a spiritual community ruled by the Spirit of God. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.